We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This week on Encountering Silence, we continue our conversation with author Shirley Hershey Showalter. Part one of this interview was released last week. The interview continues now. Shirley, the three of us are all fans of monastic spirituality. Uh, I'm a lay associate of a Trappist monastery. Cassidy is actually the secretary of the International Thomas Merton Society. She spent, what, six months, Cassidy, visiting all the Trappist monasteries in North America at one point. And so well, hearing you in this conversation, but also reading your book, describing the what's really lovely and beautiful about your Mennonite background, it seems to me that there are, there are some real similarities there between the Mennonites and the Trappists. And I, I wish I could put my finger on this. Um, maybe you, you, might, you might be able to help, help me out here. But it seems to me that Menno, is it Menno Simons? Was he the, yes. the person for whom the he Mennonites was a, are named? a Dutch priest. So, uh, but uh, probably an even more important figure among the early Anabaptists was Michael Sattler, who had yeah. been a Benedictine. That's there it is. Okay. <laughs> yes. There was there was a Benedictine connection with the I guess the Anabaptist community yes. out of which you know and the Mennonites being a major expression of that. Yes. So I'm curious if in any of your journeys, I know I know your your primary your your scholarly work has been in literature rather than theology, but I'm, but I'm just curious if if you've ever had any kind of connecting points with that kind of monastic culture and how that may have informed either your faith journey or also your journey as a writer? Well, I have. And of course, like many people, I read Thomas Merton beginning in the 80s, I think, and interpreters of him like Parker Palmer (laughs) and many other writers Uh, So I was aware of the monastic tradition, and I had heard at Mennonite conferences, I had heard someone say, well, Mennonites tried to take monasticism into the family. And that little phrase resonated with me. And so I became very interested in monasticism. I had the privilege recently of being at the Collegeville Institute. Mm-hmm. And that allowed me to attend the uh, noonday prayers uh, in at St. John's and to participate actually in the monastic rhythms of life. I had my own kind of hours <laughs> that I used as um, part of that community for a semester. And I really, really enjoyed both the quiet and the community and developed a a love of Benedictine hospitality and of many of the people I met there. I think you had Judith Vellante on as one of your guests and her book on making monasticism, making the Benedictine 
rule of life pertinent to all of life is a, a wonderful recent addition to my both my friendships and my uh, reading. So I feel a kinship to all of you who have oblate relationships um, to various of these monastic traditions. And I have, <clears throat> have also been traveling to Celtic spiritual um, landscapes and reading about Celtic spirituality and really enjoying uh, the really old monastic uh, tradition. Yeah, a lot of people don't don't recognize, but Celtic spirituality is monastic spirituality. Yes. Yeah. Mm. I'm really fascinated by this connection. Now, it's funny the the, the Benedictine, the Mennonite, the peace movement. It's it's hovering around the circle of, uh, and and now Celtic spirituality. It, I I think. I see the theme of kind of simplicity, plainness, uh, and and trying to just live the life, uh, an embodied life, what that looks like. Uh, you know, to get back to that early, I think you said at the beginning of trying to live the life of what it would have been like in the early church, so to speak. You know, yeah. I, I think it seems that no matter what denomination, church, whatever you want to call it here— they all seem to be hovering around that area. It's fascinating to see how it broke out in its own unique flavors and yet seems to resonate, you know, very strongly. And underneath uh, all of our attempts to build institutions that help us to do things like that Mm. is something even deeper, which is what I love in John O'Donohue's writing. Mm. And it, it also allows me to feel like I'm walking the circle back to the farm, back mm. to the meadow. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Right. And uh, here's a passage from a book that has just been published in the United States called Walking in Wonder, which is a posthumous book of John O'Donohue's writings. And uh, it means a lot to me because of being here in the Shenandoah Valley, looking out at the mountains every morning. It's part of my spiritual practice to just sit in my red chair and look at the mountains. And uh, John O'Donohue explains better than anybody why the mountains call, not only to me, but I think to, to many others. He says, I love mountains. I feel that mountains are huge contemplatives. They are there, and they are in the presence, up to their necks. (laughs) And they are still in it, and with it, and within it. One of the lovely ways to pray is to take your body out into the landscape and to be still in it. Your body is made out of clay. So your body is actually a miniature landscape that has got up from under the earth and is now walking on the normal landscape. If you go out for several hours into a place that is wild, your mind begins to slow down, down, down. What is happening is that the clay of your body is retrieving its own sense of sisterhood with the great clay of the landscape. And and so that is the foundational of 
connection between the body and creation mm-hmm. that goes all of our understandings of Jesus and his mission on earth and his role in transforming the world go back to this really elemental understanding of creation itself. Hmm. Shirley, I love the title of your memoir, Blush. And I think there's a pun there. And of course, I think, you know, a blush is silent. So there's some silence in there as well. But uh, but I would love it if you could just comment on why you chose that as the title and, and how the blush was such an important part of your story. Yeah. Well, I'll begin with just the fact that one of my not very well-loved uh, nicknames was Rosy Cheeks <laughs> in high school. Hmm. And I had a teacher who named me that. She she named me that affectionately, I think. But uh, I hated being uh, this country girl with rosy cheeks. You know, mm. would love to have been less of a an oddball. And to me, the rosy cheeks were uh, saying that I somehow had I was carrying with me in this same body <laughs> that we just talked about signs uh, that I couldn't control. They, they, they were, uh, even my, my normal appearance had rosy cheeks, but whenever I was in a situation where I was aware of this gap between myself and the other kids, the other teenagers usually, because children don't blush, uh, only, <laughs> only self-conscious people can blush. Mm-hmm. And so this is a great metaphor for so many things mm-hmm. between our understanding of who we are, our egos, our desire to fit in, our uh, desire to maybe even imitate something that we're seeing in other people, but um, not it's not really authentically us. And the thing about blushing is that you can't control it. And so... When I was seeking for a metaphor of the central theme for the book, which is how I wrestled with pride and humility all through my life, and I'm still doing it now, with a strong teaching in humility, which is so counterculture, and then walking into the culture in my teenage and young adult years with in one ear, the admonitions from my church and my family, and in another ear, pop music and all that was going on in the 1960s, uh, I found myself blushing uh, on more than one occasion. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I thought of it as being a curse, actually, that that I I felt it was a kind of social curse that uh, was telling me out. And it's interesting that you asked the question now because a friend of mine came across a passage in Susan Cain's book on introverts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's about blushing. Uh, this is from Susan Cain's book. Blushes signify that I care and that I know that I violated the social contract. And even though I didn't like blushing, uh, I'm discovering through the work of Dacker Keltner, who was a social scientist, that it actually is a moral emotion. Mm. 
Blushing shows humility, modesty, a desire to avoid aggression, and to make peace. <laughs> so, <laughs> I find that very highly ironic because um, <laughs> all I felt was pure embarrassment. <laughs> uh, and, and instead, it's actually a, uh, a physical manifestation of the things that you hold high and dear. <laughs> yeah, evidently. <laughs> Oftentimes we ask on this podcast uh, if you have a, a silence hero. Do you have one? I do. And um, I, I would like to um, focus on two, if I may. Sure. One that is living and one that is no longer living but is a really important part of my journey with silence. Uh, first of all, I, I just have to name my friend Parker Palmer who um, is a person who walks the talk and who lives with the traditions of his Quaker um, community, has introduced the whole world to circles of trust, and the Clearness Committee has helped people access the the gift of the of the Quaker silent worship and uh, just does it with such a great sense of grace uh, in his latest book gravity and grace he mm-hmm. he brings the gift of humor into so many situations and um, has I, I see him as walking before me he's a decade older than I am and uh, has been a role model for me in so many ways, from teaching his wonderful Courage to Teach book, which helped me be a better teacher and millions of others, and his way of bringing um, a tradition into the rest of the world, living it authentically, sharing it wholly and freely is something that I would love to emulate. So he's a, he is a hero, and um, I know many other other people feel the same way. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. And then the the person I would choose as my kind of literary silence hero is Willa Cather. Mm. And I did a dissertation on her many years ago and two other women writers as well. But it was her work that stuck with me and her work that, you know, how John O'Donohue talks about the clay in our bodies resonating with the clay in the mountains. Well, when I read Death Comes for the Archbishop, I felt myself, my clay was resonating with the beautiful language that she used, much of it about silence, 
And uh, the, the connection between silence and death uh, in that book, even though I was young when I read it, uh, has stayed with me all my life. And now, as I know that I'm in the last third of my life, it means even more to me. And it was, here are some words from Willa Cather that I think will help explain why she might be a silence hero for me. She's talking about death, something soft and wild and free, something that whispered to the ear on the pillow, lightened the heart, softly, softly picked the lock, slid the bolts, and released the prison spirit of man into the wind, into the blue and gold, into the morning, into the morning. Those words of freedom, the colors, I believe the colors of the Virgin, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken, mm -hmm. and the setting of the morning. When I first read those words, I knew they were mine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In another passage of Willa Cather's book, The Song of the Lark, when the artist Thea goes into the water and is kind of in this kind of baptismal-like setting in the Southwest where she comes to know herself. She's in this silent uh, relationship with the water and the landscape. And all that is not her fell away. And all that was her remained. And I felt that way when I read that passage and many other passages. Because Cather is a novelist, but she's actually a poet. Mm -hmm. yeah. where, where did Willa Cather live, Shirley? Well, she grew up uh, not far from here, actually, huh. Winchester, Virginia. Winchester, you know really? Oh. <laughs> There's a Trappist but, monastery in Berryville. Well, uh, th there's probably a, uh, a spirit of Willa Cather wandering around in there. <laughs> but she, she uh, was uh, moved from Virginia and from these mountains and this kind of landscape into the prairie, into the plains of Nebraska. So she's <laughs> known a lot for books like O Pioneers and... Well, m many of her books have the the prairie as the setting, but that's the most famous one. So she lived out there and went to the University of Nebraska when there were very few women at the university, and she was she was a very interesting uh, character. She dressed like a boy for many years, and addressed herself as Doctor William Cather. <laughs> I love and it. Then, yeah. yeah. So she, she was a nonconformist. <laughs> yeah. What are her years again? What are her years? Uh, she was born in 1872 okay. or three. I, she actually uh, cheated on her year of birth. I think she sometimes said she was born in 1876, but I believe the actual date is 1873. Mm-hmm. And she died as World War II was beginning, 1940, okay. uh, or ending, 1945. Mm. So those were her years. She's a post-Victorian mm -hmm. writer. 
but her her time period is not nearly as important as her landscape, mm. I think, and her ability to evoke wherever she was. And she loved the Southwest. She wrote most of her books in New York on her trips to the Southwest. And she also had uh, vacation homes in New England. So she she traveled a lot and she wrote in a lot of different places. And often she wrote about places where she grew up and her childhood experiences when she was living far away. And so those are some of her years and some of her places. Mm-hmm. So, Shirley, it seems that our culture tends to silence the aging in people in their their last third of their lives. And it seems often hard for them to find their voice um, and to find find their voice joyfully. Uh, what thoughts do you have about someone who's not sure how to find or express their voice at this period in their life? Well, there are some wonderful books that are terrific resources to all of us who are in this stage of life. And one of them would be Parker Palmer's most recent book, On the Edge of Everything, uh, Gravity, Grace, and Growing Old, I think it's mm-hmm. called. Excellent and I'd book. also uh, recommend Mark Friedman's book uh, called How to Live Forever. Hmm. <laughs> mm. uh, is that a perfect title or what? <laughs> that is good. <laughs> And uh, I, I think it's great to combine it with uh, Judith Valente's How to Live, because mm-hmm. there are people who have been giving a lot of thought to aging. Uh, aging is changing rapidly because we are living longer and people are working longer in many cases, or they are finding second careers, encore careers. There are, there are actually probably more opportunities for people in the last third of life now than there were in uh, previous generations. At least there are many uh, resources if we take advantage of them. And some of the things that I enjoy reading and writing about, uh, I blog less often now than I used to, but when I blog, I blog about Hubilacion, this this idea that I actually am borrowing from uh, Isabel Allende, uh, the novelist, mm. who has these amazing speeches about age and uh, is a, a role model and exemplar of uh, aging with joy, uh, with sexuality, with uh, exuberance even. And she pointed out in her TED Talk, about passion and age, that in South America, there is no word for retirement. And the word that they use for this stage of life is jubilación. And I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it very well, but it translates into jubilation in English. Mm. And it's so opposite the idea of retirement, which when you look at that word etymologically, it it actually means to retreat, to look mm. back. Uh, it was a military term. And to retire uh, has so many negative con- connotations as though there is, there's no life left. And that is simply not true. One of the things that Mark Friedman 
uh, extols in his book on living forever is our opportunity in these last uh, stages of life to engage in generative activity, to leave behind us uh, relationships, a legacy with the new generation, uh, whether that is through the love of grandchildren and the active engagement with our families, but it can and should probably include uh, other people as well, uh, where we are actively mentoring and offering uh, what we can, not advice, but a listening ear, being with young people in their struggles and uh, helping them to appreciate what we love, whether it's plainness or silence or nonconformity, and helping strengthen their understanding of the things that we love and value. Uh, like Wordsworth said to Coleridge long ago, others will love what we have loved, and we will teach them how. Mm-hmm. And so sharing love, sharing uh, what it is we love, who, who we love uh, with the next generation. And for me, with having chosen this idea of preparing for the hour of my death, one good day at a time, I'm involved in something called the Threshold Choir, which is an international group of people who have committed to singing at the bedside. And now singing is to a Mennonite what silence is to a Quaker. Mm. And so I actually think that for me, singing is a way of bringing silence and voice together. And the, the Threshold Choir was started, I think, about 20 years ago and has its own uh, collection of music that is simple. It's uh, non-sectarian music, but it is peaceful and calming. It is beautiful. We sing it in, in three-part harmony for women's voices. And we simply go and present ourselves to the person uh, at the edge and uh, be with them silently and with the gift of music and leave again. And it is one of the holiest experiences I've ever had. That is beautiful. That is incredibly beautiful. Shirley, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, your stories, your wisdom. We really appreciate uh, your spending time with us this morning and, um, and helping really, for me, I'll speak personally here, to have a richer sense of that relationship between silence and simplicity. Mm-hmm. That, that's been a gift for me. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. I have very much enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. Your book and the time together was very fruitful for me. Yes, yes. I found myself gazing out my window so many times listening to you, Shirley, and just really being put to silence. So mm-hmm. thank you for that. Thank you. And you're very welcome. I'm Carl McCollman. 
To learn more about me, please visit carlmccolman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is KevinMichaelJohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.